0: Hi, this is Len Epp from Lean Pub, and in this episode of the Back Matter Podcast, I'll be talking with Carla King. Carla is the founder of the Self-Publishing Bootcamp series, which you can find at selfpubbootcamp.com. It's a comprehensive set of resources, including guides, workshops, and courses for people looking to self-publish, where you can learn everything from book formatting and design essentials to setting up your own publishing business. She is also the host of the Author-Friendly Podcast, which I would highly recommend to anyone interested in learning more about how to be a successful self-published author. Carla is also a writer. Um, She's the author of a number of books, including this self-publishing boot camp guide, um, a popular book uh, associated with the previous services that I was describing that is now in its fourth edition. And she's also the author of a number of travel memoirs, including American Borders, A Solo Circumnavigation of the United States on a Russian Sidecar Motorcycle, and Stories from Elsewhere. In this interview, we're going to talk about Carla's career, her travels, and her travel writing, and her expert views on the current state of the book publishing industry and self-publishing generally. You can get a free copy of Carla's guidebook by signing up at selfpubbootcamp.com books. And you can follow her on Twitter at Miss Adventuring. And you can find her on Facebook at facebook.com slash Adventuring. So thank you, Carla, for being on the Back Matter podcast.
1: Hey, Lynn, I'm really glad to be here. Thanks.
0: <laughs> um, I always like to start these interviews, as I think you might know, uh, by asking people for their origin stories. And I know you have a really interesting one. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about uh, where you're from originally and your path to becoming an author.
1: Wow, uh, well, the first time I was recognized for my writing was in second grade. (laughs) It was uh, Miss Anderson, she was my favorite teacher of all time still, (laughs) all through school. She really encouraged me and I remember getting an award for writing a haiku. There was a haiku contest. So uh, it started then. I've always been a writer. I've always been a, an introvert. I've always journaled. My mother is an artist and a big reader, so we always had books around the house. And my dad is was a um, engineer, a field service engineer for IBM, and I started correcting his inter-office memos when I was 12 years old. He was terrible, terrible at spelling. So we lived on kind of a farm in Greensboro, North Carolina area, way out in the tobacco fields. And uh, I'm the oldest in the family, so he always had me out helping him fix the tractor and um, <laughs> just, just helping him with all the mechanical stuff.
0: And uh, you discovered motorcycles.
1: I discovered a motorcycle, yes, my escape vehicle. My sister had a horse, and I was, really wasn't interested in maintaining um, the existence of a horse. And I saw this motorcycle, and I went, wow, can, can I have that? And he said, sure. And it didn't start, and he just said, if you could fix it, you can ride it. So I set about trying to fix it. He did help me. I was 14 years old. And pretty soon, I was riding around the tobacco fields and the woods of um, the rural area where I lived in. And I just loved it. And I would either push it home or ride it home. So I had a big incentive to figure out how to fix it so I could ride it home because I would get pretty far away.
0: And um, when did you start traveling solo? I'm really curious about this with respect to your travel memoirs that you've written about. Um, uh, how, d- how did that get started?
1: Got started later, our family moved from North Carolina to San Jose, California, when I was sixteen years old and um, well, I traveled solo uh, first i didn 't want to travel solo. I was married for a brief period of time you 'll find out why in a second <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, My husband and I had always planned on going to Europe together, and we both were motorcyclists and renting motorcycles and exploring uh, Italy, uh, where he was, his origins are and France, where I've always been interested in France. And for four years, he didn't, um, he didn't do this, he didn't even take a vacation. So the fourth year, I just said, hey, you know, if you don't, if you don't go with me, I'm going to go by myself, never fully attending, intending to go by myself. But I did indeed walk up those Stairs to the airplane to Milan, all by myself, and descend and take the motorcycle straight out of Milan and into France as soon as I could. It wasn't a happy, happy trip until this, I think there was maybe the seventh or eighth day when I just started to talk to people in the campgrounds around me. Campgrounds in Europe are just full of families and people on, you know, a lot of people who just stay in one campground for the whole summer. So when they see somebody new come in, they're very welcoming, but I was very shy. But one day I just stopped being shy and joined the community of travelers and um, I started enjoying myself and I really, I really realized that I love traveling alone
0: and how do you I, 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 this might be a sort of like just a thing particular to me but like how do you know where you're going to end the day when you start <laughs> out traveling you know just alone like that
1: yeah well then I didn't I, at first I had the trip all planned out of course my husband not coming with me put a wrench in it because we had planned to spend all that time in Italy and this was pre-internet as well, so um, it was harder to find out about campgrounds and such Um, so What the, the thing that really? The thing that really helped was I was just wandering around in the French countryside I had intended to go to a particular spot a particular village a particular campground, and it had started raining, and I could see that toward the west where I was headed, it was raining harder, and there were black clouds, and to the north, there was sunshine. And just without even thinking about it, I turned the motorcycle toward the sunshine, and I ended up at this tiny little village, medieval village in the mountains, and they were having a festival there. There was a circus, and um clowns and jugglers and people from the other villages in the area were there. It was crowded and it was just so much fun. And a lot of people gathered around my motorcycle. It had Dutch plates so they thought I was Dutch (laughs) because it was a rental. And um, we, I just had struck up so many conversations and a couple of old men, World War II veterans, told me about this beautiful campsite that I could stay at, and they actually invited me home, but I was a little reticent to do that. Yeah, today I would, in a heartbeat, you know, that to, to go home with and, and enjoy a family in a foreign country is one of the best things you can do, but I didn't really know that then. So I just really enjoyed myself, and from that day on, I just put my maps away and enjoy and, and myself. I had four more weeks there, so it didn't really matter where I went. Europe was small, and there were, France, people don't realize, France has more campgrounds per capita than any other country in the whole wide world, so there was always a campground there.
0: Uh, that's, that's news to me, and that's really interesting. I know uh, from a little bit of experience I've had traveling in France about um, the festivals. Uh, they seem to have more of those uh, per capita. <laughs> as well than a lot of other places, and the, the friendliness and the sort of neighborliness of rural life there uh, is just a fantastic thing to experience. Um, you talked about putting your maps away, and actually that reminds me, I had a question I wanted to ask you. So, um, you started writing about travel technology um, quite some time ago, as, a, as partly as a result of your travels, um, and so my specific question is, how has the smartphone changed travel?
1: Oh, wow. (laughs) The smartphone and just, you know, computers in general, they they have changed it enormously. Um, I really love the serendipity inherent in the old way of travel. And when I travel today, I do often use my phone to tweet or, uh, to communicate, but I try to let myself get lost and I don't book ahead, um, unless I'm meeting somebody. So I do leave, leave that, uh, my, my route up to chance. And sometimes that chance might be a feeling. Like I remember one time in India, and, as a woman traveling alone um especially at first, you know there's there's you, you worry a lot about being taken advantage of or overpowered by. All those potential axe murderers in the world that you hear about that somehow never (laughs) manifest. (laughs) Um, And so you learn to listen to your intuition and um, intuition just tells me when I shouldn't turn right or left or when I shouldn't stop in a place that, you know, I may have maybe approaching Um, the weather might have something to do with it. I in Morocco, I met. Uh, man at a gas station when I was riding my sidecar motorcycle there who was just so completely Thrilled that I was a strong woman. He kept saying, strong, strong, you must meet my mother and my sisters and my grandmother and my aunts and my uncles and come with me. And it wasn't the first time in Morocco that men had asked me to come home to their families with them. And I had said, no, but this man was just so enthusiastic that I went, okay. And I tootled along behind him. And sure enough, the whole family came out and I spent the whole afternoon with his females of his family, and it was it was amazing. And if I had had a reservation, um, I knew where some of the Casbahs were that I wanted to go to, but I hadn't made reservations. If I had made reservations, I would have had to say no, right, because my money would have, or I would have lost my money, which, you know, for $30 a night a Casbah isn't that expensive. So, um, Yeah, it's changed a lot and I wish people would put their phones away more and not make reservations.
0: Uh, So you you spoke about your sidecar um, uh, motorcycle, is this the same one that you drove around the United States, uh, testing it out, as I understand, (laughs) for a Russian company?
1: So this was where my writing career started really. In 1994, I had been a Silicon Valley technical writer for several years and I was a consultant, and I was getting really bored. (laughs) And um, uh, So I would work, it made quite a bit of money, I would work for a project, which was four to eight months perhaps, and then take off traveling for the rest of the year, or until I ran out of money, and then come back and work some more. And um, I had lived in Europe, I went back to France many years after I had gone that first time, uh, to work for Hewlett Packard in in Lyon. And of course, when I got there, I was like, oh, I want to be a travel writer because I was journaling and writing letters about all the wonderful things. That was France, right? The, the cafes and the marketplaces and the Rhone and the Seine and uh, the ca- gastronomic chem- capital of the world was Lyon, maybe still is Lyon and i didn't know how i didn't know how to write for travel i didn't really even know how to be a journalist yet um so when i came back i went to a travel writing conference in marin north of san francisco and it was the book passage uh travel writers conference which goes on Still today, which I think it is actually combined with photography and cooking, which is too bad because travel writing is enough. (laughs) And I met a lot of editors, but the first person I met was in the parking lot of the bookstore where this was held, and it was a man named Alan Norrin, and he worked for O'Reilly and Associates, which of course you know about those guys, right? And so Alan Uh, had ridden his BMW motorcycle to the event, and so we stopped and talked for a little while about motorcycling and travel. And then we had to run in, and it turned out that he was presenting, this was 1994, to the Travel Writers Conference, this concept of this thing called the internet and the World Wide Web, (laughs) and their efforts to create a property where travel writers would go off on trips and in real time, report back to their internet audience about what was happening on their trip. So, <laughs> I was thrilled because, you know, I love technology. I had my my background was in technical writing and even as far back as my dad, right? And I love experimenting with all kinds of new machines whether it be computers smartphones or motorcycles and I told him I said I would love to try this I said I have come back from the United from France I wanted to ride a motorcycle around the United States to explore my own country because my friends in Europe were kind of pissed off that I couldn't tell them a lot about the United States Right, because I hadn't explored it. So I vowed to learn what my own country was all about, and especially the borders, because Europe had made me fascinated with borders and the changes that happened. So I planned this trip called American Borders, where I would go around and explore the borders of the coast in Canada and Mexico. But I didn't know what um, motorcycle to ride. But I proposed to Alan that I write for the global network navigator, which this property was called. And I did tell him that I didn't really know how to be a travel writer, and he was fine with that because he was having a hard time finding big name travel writers who knew how to use a laptop and knew how to FTP things or even knew what FTP was, right? So I completely lucked out. I was in the right place at the right time.
0: Yeah, uh, what was the what was the term for uh, real time online travelog? I think was, this, was, this it. was what it was before they shortened it to blogs.
1: So yes, um, now they're called weblogs, of course, sure. <laughs> or blogs. <Yeah. laughs> I don't think people even know the word weblogs anymore.
0: Yeah.
1: So um, let's see, what was your question? How um, did I ride the motorcycle around? Right?
0: Yeah. So you, there, there was I, a Russian motorcycle, a sidecar uh, motorcycle.
1: So, um, my dad's friend Chuck, who since passed away, showed me this amazing motorcycle, picture of a motorcycle in a magazine. There was this company in Washington state who wanted to bring over these Russian Ural motorcycles as a specialty import to the United States. And, um, <laughs> They were in Bellum, Washington. And so I I wrote them a letter and I said, listen, I'm going to take this trip around the U.S. I'd love to ride your motorcycle. I didn't want to ride a Harley. That was too predictable, right? And I had a Yamaha, but I didn't want to ride that. And so I got a call back on the phone. Remember, this is kind of pre-email still. And the guy told me, he goes, wow, this sounds great, but we have no idea if this motorcycle is going to last for three or four hundred miles before it breaks down. We've actually never ridden it outside of Siberia in snowfields at 35 miles an hour. <laughs> so he said, we'll need a mechanic to work on him." And I'm like, hey, I'm a pretty good mechanic. and so I flew up there and I tested it and you know we tested each other and he was a great guy Bob Jerand he's not in the business anymore but he said yeah let's go for it so we so I took the Ural home uh, it didn't break down all the way home to Santa Cruz which is where I lived at the time and I planned on leaving June 21st, uh, 1995, on the first day of summer, summer solstice, and tooling around the United States for, oh, four or five months, just seeing, um, testing the motorcycle, fixing it if it needed it, and sending back live, real-time reports to the web.
0: Yeah, it's, I mean, it must have been quite an adventure. And how did you deal with breakdowns?
1: I fixed it. I'm <laughs> i am I'm actually a pretty good mechanic. And you know what, this motorcycle is based on a 1938 BMW. And so it's air cooled. There's not you see motorcycles today and they're they underneath the plastic, they've got a lot of diodes and wiring and stuff. But th- these are old, old motorcycles. So they're pretty, pretty simple. So I would either limp along to a town or Uh, find somebody who had a garage full of tools or a motorcycle and I I would sometimes spend the night at somebody's house in the middle of nowhere waiting for parts being shipped from Ural so that I could fix it and go on my way it made for some really good stories I have to tell you that
0: I can only imagine I mean what it must be like to be broken down and just go up to someone's I I imagine farmhouse Uh, are they they accustomed to things
1: like that Somebody, a lot of times they, people would just tow me along, right? They just wrote, you know, because the sidecar has a big, um, you know, support between the sidecar and the motorcycle itself. So they just tow me along to the next town or to a farm. Every farmer has a ton of tools and they're really good at fixing everything. So <laughs> it, was, it wasn't really a problem. I did go through four alternators. The electrical problems were a little bit. You know more difficult to sort out um, but i got that fixed by um i think ohio
0: <laughs> on the subject of your writing um just i guess going to the next uh part of this interview um it's interesting when i was reading your bio I, it reminded me I, I once came across an interesting anecdote about derek walcott um the nobel prize-winning poet where for his first book he went to his mum. And he borrowed some money and he got his poems printed up as a book and just went out onto the street and sold it to anyone he could convince to buy it. Um, <laughs> that's how he got going. Um, I really like that anecdote because in so many ways it captures not just the drive and energy it takes to get started as a writer, but also the often mundane nature of what it's like to put yourself out there. Um, and as I understand it from your experience, so you, you, you um, like, like many of us, you got, you got rejected from some overtures made to publishers. But you ended up um going around in France uh just selling your book to uh bike shops and and bookstores. Is that correct?
1: That's right. That was that was pre uh internet. That was uh a- after I had worked in Lyon, I fell in love with the country and um I wanted to go back, so I carved out six months from my schedule and went to live in Nice, and I was a monster mountain biker back then, and when I got to Nice, I was mountain biking everywhere in the, what they call the pre-Alps, which are the hills before the Alps, which is pretty hardcore, really. There were a lot of bicycle clubs, but there were no guidebooks to the area. I kept trying to find the best little roads, the best trails, and so I put my tech writing hat on and just documented all of the rides that I took, and uh, put the 10 best rides, it's a small area, the 10 best rides in a little book called Cycling the French Riviera. And I did, I, I queried a bunch of um, you know travel and um, guidebook companies, and they all loved it. They loved it, but they wanted me to Create a bigger book Like all of the south of France right, Or even all of France So they said no So when I came home I just created the book I did it in Microsoft Word I hired a cover designer That a friend of mine knew Um, She actually worked on magazine covers And you can tell from my book cover That it really does look like a magazine book cover I had a friend create maps for me and i flew back to um i flew back to nice with a truck i rented a car i had a trunk full of books and i sold them to like you said english language bookstores bicycle shops and the tourist offices for nice they had two big tourist offices and then the tourist offices for all the little towns and areas where i bicycled and it was such a success i completely fell in love with self-publishing i had total control and i made all the money of course too
0: and and just to just i mean it might be a bit particular but so you were like walking in with like a bag of books
1: (laughs) i was i'd walk in with you know one book and i said here here i am um you I just told them my history. I was a bicyclist. I lived here. Actually, so many of them knew me already because I had been in their tourist offices gathering brochures and asking them about the routes and any secret little villages that I should visit. So it wasn't like I was cold calling. I was all—I already knew where I was going and why. I knew the, the owner of the English language bookstores and the, there were, oh, I think, three in the whole Riviera area. And I didn't know all the bicycle shops, but I knew the ones in Nice near where I was living, but I hit all of the other ones up and they happily bought it because the French, you know, it doesn't, I wrote it in English, but the maps were completely decipherable to French speakers who most mostly could read English anyway. And there were a ton of English-language tourists in the south of France as well.
0: Uh, yeah, I've got to say I've spent um, some time there myself. I had a friend who lived kind of up the road from Monaco. Um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, what's it, the, the Promenade des Anglais? Um,
1: oh, that's it, yeah, on, on the Nice uh, waterfront. Yeah, famous uh,
0: destination historically for tourists uh, from oh. English-speaking tourists. Um, uh, one of the... Things I really liked about or found interesting in your bio uh, and liked was um, the story that you have about how you you, you had a self-published book that I think what, that you put together with a bunch of other, uh, I think might be, have been specifically women writing about travel, um, and it got picked up by a conventional publisher. <laughs> and it was a big success until that happened. Um, <laughs> and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that, because I think for a lot of people, uh, the conventional story is what a great… You know, the, the, the big success is when you get picked up by the big publisher, the big New York publisher, and then you're off to the races. But in your in your case, it didn't work out that way.
1: No, and this happens a lot these days with self-published authors who are successful. So it is a kind of a, story, a warning story. Yes, um, I after I had come back from my American borders trip in 95. And then I had gone on a similar trip to China on a similar motorcycle breaking down all around China in 98. And by then I was becoming a writer. I, you know, I was, I knew how to write for travel. Um, I had had a lot of help. I had gone to the writers conference and that's where I met the members of my writing group who were called the Wild Writing Women. (laughs) And you have to remember, in in San Francisco, is a hub for travel writing. So there are an awful lot of travel writers there. And these 12, we were 12, professional, published, women, adventure travel writers in all different kinds of arenas. I was the motorcycle one. There was a sort of a dancey, spiritual one. There was a food one. There was, you know, one that specialized in... The Middle East and one that specialized in Asia, Uh, and one who was the editor of the AAA magazine travel section. And so we, we were getting really frustrated because our best travel stories were not being published, largely because advertising dictates what gets published in travel. Like a story about uh, Headhunters doesn't go well next to an advertisement about a Hawaiian cruise, right? So we decided that we were going to put our book, put two stories each together that, to make 24 stories and self-publish the book ourselves. This took a little bit of doing because at that time in 2000, most of us, me excluded, of course, weren't in love with the idea of self-publishing. So we, you know, the ones that were, I think, four out of the 12 of us were really gung-ho about it. We pushed it through. Everybody helped a lot. We had, you know, they're they're great writers, great editors. Uh, One or two of us were designers. So we really did it completely on our own. We hired my friend Lynn Bishop, who was an award-winning designer to do the cover, which is gorgeous, go look at it, it's uh, Wild writing Women's Stories of World Travel. We printed a thousand copies, went to Book Passage, that same independent bookstore where I had gone to the Travel Writers Conference, and people couldn't even get in the door of the bookstore when we launched the book. It was so crowded and you can imagine why. So, you can imagine how many people I knew, right? One one of us knew times 12. So all of us had marketed the heck out of it, <laughs> right? And it was packed and the bookstore had marketed the heck out of it. And there were people in the parking lot and spilling out into the street. It was awesome. We had, ordered a thousand books, and we had to hold back some books so that we could sell them at our next talks. Wow. Yeah. Wow.
0: You know? and, so, uh, and so it got noticed.
1: Well, we went to BEA. So that year we got right. very excited, and, um, and like I said, many of the wild writing women were still not convinced that self-publishing was a good thing. It still was stigmatized then much more than it is today. I would argue that it isn't so stigmatized today. So we went to BEA and we passed out little postcards and we talked to publishing companies. And when we got back, we got 18 letters of interest from publishers, 18.
0: Wow.
1: It was crazy. Now mind you, the offers, when we explored them, none of them were offering over $5,000 and 12% royalty. It's not very good, is it? No. So, I was saying no. I mean, that's not even worth it. It's not. It's absolutely not worth it. We we brought it to a vote, and it was the uh, one of the offers was accepted, seven to five. So the majority of us voted to um, give it to Globe, and honestly, that was two thousand one. So in 17 years, none of us have received a penny in royalties,
0: zero. And why, why is that?
1: Well, part of it was uh, 9-11. Hmm. So that took a lot of travel books off the market. And, uh, and also the travel industry suffered greatly. Uh, travel sections of newspapers and magazines actually shut down after that because nobody nobody wanted to go out of the country or fly. So that was part of it, and that coincided with the launch of our book at Globe. But there was zero marketing. There's been zero marketing ever since then. So without any marketing, it's just dead. It's backlisted.
0: Uh, that's really interesting uh, in a number of ways. Um, it had never – I just hadn't really internalized how um, – 9-11 would have affected travel from Americans in that way. Um, uh, but it's it seems very straightforward now that you describe it that way. Uh, uh, it's it, it's a bit of a coincidence, but the last interview I actually did for this podcast was with um, an author named Marie Force. I don't know if you've heard of her. Um, but um, her husband was on an aircraft carrier when 9-11 happened, and, and it was the one that was brought into New York Harbor. Uh, mm. And anyway, just sorry to bit of a tangent, but, you know, just taking the opportunity to reflect on what a momentous event that was, uh, and how, uh, far reaching its consequences were. Um, and so, uh, it sounds like your experience, uh, losing the vote, um, uh, uh, to convince you to, um, uh, get into the self-publishing world. And so you've, you've built this little Uh, uh, Well, not little. You've built this business around um, self-publishing. And I was wondering if you you could talk a little bit about how that that got started.
1: Yes. Well, despite the failure of the stories of World Travel Book, you know, for obvious reasons, uh, self-publishing started to boom because traditional publishing was suffering and in the mid 2000s. Um, more and more of my author friends in San Francisco, who had kind of turned up their noses at my self publishing efforts before, started kind of sheepishly coming to me and say, saying, Carla, my, my publisher just lowballed me on um, my next book. I can, cannot possibly make a living on their advance and the royalties. Can you tell me about self publishing? So I was suddenly teaching people how to uh, format books and how to write how to how to create an author website how to write for the web I had already been teaching people how to write for the web for a number of years and creating author websites because writing for the web can be very different of course and um, and how to blog as well people wanted to know how to blog and get their own audience and create mailing lists so I was teaching that and the demand just became larger and larger so I started self-help camp, just in answer to my friends bombarding me <laughs> with questions and friends of their friends and it just became so much of a an effort that I said I, I need to start a business and start making money out of this because it's taking half of my time I did and I wrote a little Workbook for my classes, which turned into the first edition of my book, which is now in its fourth edition. And um, I was holding self-publishing boot camps all around the Bay Area, in fact, all the way up to all the way up and down the into the Pacific Northwest and Southern California, too.
0: Wow and uh, so it just kind of grew organically from that experience and it's it's interesting I wanted to ask you about um so do you think have you seen a change in the stigma in the last couple of years that 's noticeable uh that that's been that 's been my experience
1: yeah i I have and i think it 's largely due to the efforts of people who are self publishing successfully Hugh Howie of course you know Um, The people in the news, the big names, right, that give authors hope and make us all realize that we can also succeed with a quality book. And I love teaching authors how to create a quality book because that's just the difference between success and failure. Um, Right now, I'm really interested in helping people get early readers and developmental editors and making their book look exactly like those that are published by the traditional industry so that there's no discernible difference to the general public, right? Uh, so a quality book is a quality book. I know self-publishing has a bad name but uh, in, in many circles, but the numbers prove that it is a good business model.
0: Yeah, it's interesting that does seem to be one of the things that's changed in the last just I I would say like really changed in the last just couple of years is that you can make money now uh, in a way in a way that you couldn't in the past um or couldn't couldn't quite so uh readily. Um one of the uh on that topic um I was reading through your websites uh and um found that one of your first tips is for people to get an ISBN number. Mhm. And I wanted to ask you about that that actually kind of surprised me uh why 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 is that
1: oh yeah the first oh, thing
0: you recommend
1: yeah, it is always the number one thing that I recommend because uh when you own your own i s b n you have the freedom to move your book from one service to the other. you're not trapped at the service because you're using their i s b n no matter how well meaning they they may be in providing you with a free or low cost ISBN. That ISBN still belongs to Amazon or Ingram Spark or BookBaby or whoever, right? So when the bookstore looks up your book, if, you, if you're pitching your book to an independent bookstore near you and you're saying, "Okay, here's my book," and they look it up and they see an Amazon ISBN on it, they're not going to buy it. They don't like. They don't like Amazon. That's another reason. So if you print your book with Amazon and use their ISBN, and then decide to print your book at Ingram Spark, you have to get a different ISBN for the same book. So you could use a, a ISBN from Ingram Spark and that would be an Ingram Spark ISBN. But if you just go to Bowker and buy 10 ISBNs, it's expensive in the US, it's free in many countries and low cost in many more. It costs $295 to invest in the freedom for your book to buy 10 ISBNs so you can port it anywhere so the book industry can track it so that you you're the owner, you're the publisher.
0: Um, on the subject of tracking actually um uh so wh- there was recently in the in the news was another report that you know ebook sales are down in the United states generally um do you think that's true?
1: Oh, I don't think that's true i think uh if any statistics are coming it depends on where the statistics are coming from. if they're coming from bowker um they don't track. ASINs, which is the Amazon identifier, they just track ISBNs, right? Mm -hmm. So that makes sense. So a lot of authors who publish on Amazon, Kobo, uh, I think Apple does require an ISBN. Uh, They they don't use ISBNs. So if the data is coming from sources that only track ISBNs, they're just wrong.
0: Yeah. And uh, what's what's your sense of that? I mean, do you think that, uh, I mean, of course, you know, given that it can't be tracked, uh, or some things aren't being tracked, um, is the view actually much more optimistic than one would get from the kind of New York Times book section?
1: Yeah, I think so. I mean, I I think it would be better to go to the Data Guy website, you know, um, Hughes and Data Guy's website, they have, they're cobbling together some real numbers. But the fact is self-published authors mostly sell ebooks because it's very difficult for self-published authors to get placed in bookstores. Now, there are hybrid deals that are going on. Some years ago, the romance writer Bella Andre, very famous, she negotiated a deal with Harlequin to keep her ebooks as self-published and Harlequin would handle her print book rights, and it's been very successful on both ends, and I think that really started a conversation between authors and publishing companies about hybrid deals like that. I really love that she paved the way for for self-published authors and traditionally published authors to separate those uh, formats and to start getting creative with book deals.
0: Um, You mentioned that some people don't like Amazon. Um, what What do you think about Amazon?
1: Oh, I love Amazon, and I hate Amazon, guys, <laughs> like everybody else. I love technology, and, you know, I followed all of the self-publishing uh, technology creators over the years, and, you know, Amazon was very early in enabling authors to, to publish. Now, you know, ev- everybody who publishes a book isn't going to publish a great book, but we have the freedom to create what we like, what we want and to succeed or fail on our own merits and you know if you don't if you don't do your market research or if you write a bad book or or if your editing is terrible or your formatting your cover that's too bad but i think the democratization of publishing overall is a really it's a really good thing. I mean mo- a lot of self-published authors really are only publishing for a small group or as a personal project. I think authors who are serious, who want to make a business out of it, who want to write multiple books, really are delving more deeply into the correct publishing processes and following the model that the traditional publishers have sat down to make sure that the book is of uh, the highest possible quality. And that's a good thing.
0: Uh, that reminds me you uh, of something I read. Um, you've taken the position that independent authors should create their own publishing company for themselves. Mm-hmm. And I was wondering if you, that sounds daunting, I think, to, to a lot of people. Um, and I was wondering, wondering if you could talk a little bit about why it's important to sort of do that boring work to set yourself up that yeah,
1: way. it really is boring, isn't it? All this business stuff. Yeah, All right. the business stuff is essential if you really do want to make a living as a self-published author. You have to wear the business hat as well. It's difficult to pass it off on to somebody else unless you have a lot of money. And some people do have the money to spend to, to hire business types to help them with this. But it's not really as hard as it might sound. The, what, what, you, what you do is you make up a nice name. Okay, mine is Misadventures Media, right? Uh, it encompasses all of my travel writing and my self-pub boot camp and my author-friendly brands. It's really because I don't want to be Carla King Publishing, mm-hmm. right? That's just blatantly self-published, All you have to do is get a DBA, right? A doing business as in the United States. You probably have something like that in Canada, right?
0: Like what, sir? A
1: a DBA, a doing business as, or a fictitious business name, so you can separate your personal business and your your checking account. You have a separate checking account for your business than you do for your...
0: Uh, Yeah, that sounds right. but I wouldn't. I wouldn't want to give a professional kind of commitment. <laughs> yeah.
1: So in the U.S., you get a fictitious business name. It doesn't. It, I, I think you can go to Zoom, uh, which is a legal legal Zoom, and they'll do it for 120. dollars And then you buy your own ISBNs, um, which is easy. Which is about 295 dollars. And then I think it's really good to get an EIN, which is a tax identification number in the US, which is different than your social security number. Because a lot of people just slap their social security numbers into Amazon and Smashwords and Ingram Spark and wherever else they publish. And that's okay. But when it comes time to do your taxes, everything gets very confusing. So if you have an EIN, which is free from the uh, Federal government website in the United States, you can separate it. So really, it's those three little things that will set your, you know, business apart from your personal finances and income.
0: That's a really great um, advice. It's nice to get the uh, the details. Uh, people often skip them over with vague uh, sort of statements, but that's that's awesome to be so clear. It's-
1: I'm sorry. I don't know what this is all in the other countries, like in Canada and in the EU and Great Britain. But I think everybody's set up kind of similarly. So there must be an equivalent.
0: Yeah, I would imagine that in uh, many EU countries, it's um, probably a little bit more difficult um, Mm -hmm. and involved. Um, uh, I Actually, we were talking just before we, we started this interview about the GDPR, which is you know, the deadline kind of just passed. It just ticked over into midnight in, in Europe mm-hmm. uh, as we speak. Um, and, uh, yeah, I was wondering if you wanted to talk a little bit about that. Is that something that you've been looking into? or
1: I, I am mystified by it. So the GDPR, I've been getting all these emails that say you have to opt in to my – newsletter again if you want to keep hearing from me because of this law but i looked a little bit into the law and it actually my very brief take on it is that if you've been signing people up honestly like when you have a sign up form on your website that says you will be getting my newsletter sign up for like i have you know sign up for my free consumers sign up for my email newsletter to get my free consumer's guide so they're gonna get my free consumer's guide but they also know because I've stated it that they're on my newsletter and as long as you as long as I haven't say get my free consumer's guide by signing up here omitting that you're also on my newsletter right that would be bad that's a dishonest way to get people on my mailing list so it seemed to me that that was it, but I could be completely, <laughs> completely, I could be completely wrong and deluding myself because I don't want to send out all these emails.
0: Yeah, um, I, I can say from my experience in the last couple of weeks, um, I've been pretty preoccupied with it. I'm now the official data protection officer for Leanpub, um, uh-huh. and um, uh, I think the main thing. Uh, in addition to everything which I think you accurately described, which is basically if you, if you 've been opt in up until now and explicit about what 's been going on you don 't need to email people about that um, but the there are obligations going forward about like people can email you and say like give me give me the information that you 've gathered on me mm-hmm. um, so that I can take it to other services, delete my information, that kind of stuff is um, you know, that's that those are kind of new obligations that really really like, you know, sort of um forthcoming and resourceful people would have done anyway in the past, but uh-huh. now have been kind of formalized. And essentially what's happened is, you know, the EU has passed some rules that are now being imposed on everyone. Um it's uh, it's it's good in intention. Um uh but um is imposing a burden on everyone going forward, unfortunately. hmm uh-huh. Uh, one thing I would say to anyone listening is you're not going to go to jail. Uh, I, saw, I, I was saying before our interview, I saw someone online saying, you know, you might get detained in Europe if your terms of service aren't updated on your author website. And that oh that's, that's not going to happen. <laughs> um, the, the,
1: like our TSA needs something else to do, right?
0: Yeah, yeah. No, the, exactly. No, the, the, um, the, the punishment is fines. Um, mm-hmm. And the enforcement of it is something that's just, I, I think, actually irresponsibly unclear um so everyone's worried about it but no one knows exactly how it's going to be enforced or even if um, but yeah so my actually my, i know i think i i don't know if this is still true but i saw in one of your bios that you're on the advisory board for ingram spark um and so my last question is uh when you're sitting around with the other advisory board members um, (laughs) uh, if if you do that kind of thing. Uh, What's the biggest thing people are talking about these days uh, in your self-publishing community conversations?
1: Mm, Well, I don't think I'm allowed to tell you what we talk about for Spark, but but I don't think it's too different than everybody else. Um, Let's see. What is the thing that everybody's most concerned about? I don't know if this really answers your question, but all I get all day is how do I market my book? You know, and also from companies, how do I help authors market their books? And this is something that's at the forefront of my mind right now. Um, i creating this, this course, uh, online courses, and I've been struggling because you know, the first step that people want to to make in self-publishing is to get their book formatted, designed, and onto Amazon, right? right. But that's not the first step. I mean, that's so far down the train of, of, of publishing. It's a lot of publishing, whether it's self-publishing or traditional publishing, starts when you start writing the book in the traditional world well i don't i've only heard this because i haven't worked with an editor this way or a publishing company this way but i know people who have they talk the book over with their editor uh, and who takes it to their team and an acquisitions editor looks at the idea does the research, knows the landscape, knows that this topic is hot or not, and right then and there, the book either lives or dies, right? No, this is last year's topic, or yeah, this book is, you know, that like right now, it's about diversity. So whatever novel or whatever book you're writing, it had better have multicultural, multiracial, you know, gender, diversity, everything in it, especially in romance and young adult. So I don't think authors think about that, the viability of their book and doing the market research and doing the competitive analysis and you know, measuring the viability of their book and getting beta readers and critique partners to make sure that the market wants it And this actually isn't really in the conversation when we talk with the publishing industry about how to publish or how to self-publish. Because self-publishing and publishing is just that, it's all about publishing. But I think the piece that's missing that we should be talking about is, when does that start? (laughs) What? When it does, it does the writing, does the book want to be written by someone other than the author? Because when you get past writing it, editing it, formatting it, designing it, putting it up on social media, spending the money for a PR company, on all that, that marketing, people think that the marketing comes after, but this planning for marketing really starts before at the inception of the book. And that's the piece that's missing from the self-publishing talks and the self, like the track. It it always starts with formatting.
0: Right, so you should do, I mean, you're talking about competitive analysis, which is, um, Mm -hmm. I think you've got blog posts about this, but, you know, it it can be as detailed as like, you know, if you're thinking about writing on a topic, go into Amazon, do Mm -hmm. searches, um, do searches for Titles. What What are the titles of successful books in the area that you want to write about? How do you differentiate yourself from those? And and do all these things even before you get going, um, so that you have uh, a sort of specific direction that you've already.
1: And it's kind of impossible for Ingram Spark and for Smashwords and for Amazon to talk about this, right? Because they don't have a tool for that. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. So, uh, and, and it's exactly like starting your own business. And I think a lot of authors as well as many artists, you know, everybody wants to be an a writer or an artist, but unless you're super lucky, uh, you're going to need to know about the industry that you're entering. You're going to need a business plan. You know, you're going to need those pesky little, you know, uh, bank accounts and EINs and things that I talked about earlier, You're going to need to know that the market wants your product. And whether we like it or not, a book is a product. There are plenty of people who are just writing self-publishing for their family or for themselves. But I see over and over again writers who are creating whole series of of books um, who aren't getting the message from the first book that nobody wants it you know it's a very limited audience and they're still writing the second book and the third book because they want to and that's fine if if they're doing it as a personal project but being frustrated because it's not selling is 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 silly it's not a good reaction they need to start over and write to the market now I'm not saying and I hate to say this because as with fiction, that's hard to do. I mean, you have a vision and you have a story, but sometimes it just takes beta readers and critique partners to tinker with it a little bit. And and put. And I've learned this from being in many writers groups in my life, right? To just push it in another direction. Your narrative arc may be wrong. Your character may not be sympathetic, right? So there are small things that you can do to make your book a good, saleable, interesting story.
0: Um, Just uh, closing off the interview, we've been talking for a while now, and thanks very much for your time, I really appreciate it. Um, I just wanted to ask, uh, where are you going next?
1: Mm. Well, I have um, accidentally bought a house in Baja, (laughs) so I'm going there next. (laughs) I do a lot of dirt bike riding and adventuring there, Uh, but my heart is longing for France again. So, uh, yeah, I'm split.
0: Well, uh, either option sounds fantastic.
1: Doesn't it? Um, I it's not bad. (laughs) uh,
0: And uh, best wishes uh, wherever you go. Uh, And, yeah, thank you again, Carla, for um, taking the time to do this and for all your helpful advice and insight.
1: (laughs) Thank you, Lynn. It's been fun.
0: Thanks very much.